You're going to love this. Just love it. Maybe. Yeah, you will. You will love it. Never is. Never I'm so scared is. in case I fall off my chair. But I'm very rarely and scared. Get never. I would say never scared. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in. Yes, I am stuck in the middle with you once again. From Pacifica Radio's KPFK in Los Angeles, 90.7 FM in L.A., 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, 93.7 FM in San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake, 91.7 FM KYAQ along the beautiful Oregon Central Coast, and of course, coast to coast and around the globe on kpfk.org, on the Stitcher app, on the TuneIn app, on iTunes, on the Progressive Voices Channel, on Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation Network, and much, much more. Welcome. This is your Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly citizen, investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, and muckraker from bradblog.com. Glad you could join us here today. Got another big show with, for you. It's, of course, it's another big week as it has been a lot lately. Uh, last week, it was uh, it was Donald Trump. He had just entered the GOP race while well, he pretended to enter the GOP race, while well, he pretended to be forming an exploratory committee or what other kind of nonsense he was going to do. This week, it's Ted Cruz. He is officially getting into the 2016 GOP presidential circus. And welcome to it, Ted. Uh, he announced his intentions on Monday to do that. Uh, the By the way, that was the fifth anniversary of the dreaded, evil, job-killing scheme, otherwise known as uh, Obamacare. Yeah, you know, the scheme to ensure Americans uh, who need access to health care, stuff like that. Anyway, uh, on Tuesday morning after he announced his uh, Entering the race, Cruz offered one of the most impressively political sound bites I have ever heard in my life. And I mean, it was really good. Not just really good for Ted Cruz, but really good for any Republican ever. We'll be playing that a little bit later in the show. Also, a uh, huge vulnerability, a huge security vulnerability was discovered at the last minute in yet another Internet voting scheme. We'll talk about that, and we will be joined by Brad Blog's legal analyst, Ernie Canning, to discuss the Supreme Court's decision this week to not hear the challenge to Wisconsin's photo ID voting restriction case and what that will likely mean for the 2016 elections. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, and that's not good news. We'll talk to Ernie a bit about that, as well as uh, some news on Prop 49, which was the Overturn Citizens United initiative that was set to be on the ballot last year in 2014 until the Supreme Court, the California Supreme Court, removed it from the ballot. Uh, they did so wrongly. In violation of the law or the California Constitution, at least according to a number of advocacy groups that are now challenging that decision. So we'll talk to 
Ernie about that as well. Also, as usual, Desi Doyen in the Green News Report. She will be joining us. Uh, and uh, more there on uh, climate-denying Ted Cruz, who leads our report. Yes, start popping your popcorn now. Uh, we'll also discuss whether mandatory water rationing is now necessary in California. One top elected state official, and maybe only just one, has now shown the courage to say as much. Uh, plus, don't say climate change in Florida, or they may send you to a mental hospital. We'll have that all in the Green News Report. Really, truly, all of that and more in the broadcast straight ahead. But first, you know, uh, last week we talked a little bit about the Israeli elections. Those were just wrapping up, and uh, a lot of people had questions about them. They had questions about uh, the results, frankly, given the fact that pre-election polls showed that uh, Netanyahu's uh, Likud party was likely to lose, or at least come in second place in that election. And then even exit polls on the day of the election that showed the race was pretty much too close to call. So a lot of people were alarmed, a lot of people were concerned, a lot of people were surprised when it turned out that uh, Netanyahu's Likud party ended up winning and winning pretty big. Now, we talk a lot about election integrity on this show, and uh, since a lot of people had been asking me, do I have concerns about the disparities between the polling, both the exit polling and the pre-election polling, and the final results, the answer is, as always, yes, I have concerns about that. But it's also important to remember that uh, before you you know, run out and yell fraud, you need some actual hard Evidence. There are some reasons why the exit polls could make sense. Uh, also, I want to let people know that in Israel, they do not currently use electronic voting. They may soon. There are plans on the way for that. But for now, they don't. It's all done on paper that uh, those paper ballots are hand counted uh, centrally, I believe, as opposed to at the precinct, which would be better. But for now, it's all done uh, centrally. There are places to game the system within that. But so far, no evidence has come up. I just want to let people know that's where we are on that. I am continuing to keep my eyes on it. And if people have evidence they think I should see, uh, by all means, feel free to let me know. Drop me an email. Uh, stop by bradblog.com. Uh, that said, the other thing that seems to have happened following uh, the elections, the Israeli elections last week, and not actually following it, but in the lead up to the elections, was um, the sort of American partisanization of the elections. I don't even know if that's a word, but that's kind of what's happened. You know, we've had uh, for decades in this country... Both of the major political parties, Republicans and Democrats, uh, have sort of, uh, you know, while they uh, pretend to disagree on all manner of things back here domestically, when it comes to Israel, they have been on the same page for decades. And suddenly that looks like it's beginning to split. Uh, we saw that with Netanyahu's uh, speech to Congress that the Republicans invited him to carry out without talking to Obama first. Uh, and we saw that once Netanyahu won, you saw a lot of Republicans separ uh, celebrating a lot of Democrats uh, and progressives and liberals really troubled by uh, by Netanyahu winning and concerns that the peace process would be off. There would be no uh, the two state solution, etc. And uh, they had good reason to be worried about that on Election Day. 
uh, just after Netanyahu had promised that there would never be a Palestinian state, no two-state solution, he then doubled down, sending out this message to supporters, quote, The right-wing government is in danger! Arab voters are coming out in droves to the polls. Left-wing organizations are bussing them out. Man, bussing them out. Sound familiar? Get out the vote, uh, Likud said. Bring your friends and family. Vote Likud in order to close the gap between us and labor. Uh, you know, never mind uh, this Arab voters are coming out in droves at the polls. Uh, imagine if Republicans had said black voters are coming out in droves to the polls. So it was offensive, but it was also kind of Americanized. Sounds a lot like American elections. So you had a lot of Republicans celebrating. You had a lot of Democrats very concerned. And then I was uh, here in the station uh, at KPFK over the weekend, uh, and I ran into Esty Chandler. Esty Chandler is the producer and co-host of Middle East in Focus, heard on the weekends here on KPFK, and it's been airing regularly since 1980. And she had kind of an interesting take on this, a, uh, a third way, if you will, to think about what happened in these elections. And I want to talk to her about that because it's shockingly, surprisingly optimistic. Uh, Esti is the Jewish-American daughter of an Israeli father and an American mother. She worked for the 2008 Obama campaign in Los Angeles and in 2010 launched the L.A. chapter of Jewish Voice for Peace, JVP.org. That's a national organization promoting solutions based on universal human rights for both Palestinians and Israelis equally. They're fighting efforts to silence debate about U.S.-Israeli-Palestinian policy and working in broad coalition with other Jewish-Arab-American faith-based peace and social justice organizations. Esty continues to serve as the chapter's key organizer, but it was her interesting take on the Israeli elections that I wanted to ask her about. Uh, Esty Chandler, welcome to the broadcast. Thanks for having me, Brad. Uh, okay, so uh, I, I think you heard my opening. I think you heard my uh, my setup, my initial thoughts there. Republicans are delighted Netanyahu is in. Democrats uh, are upset, are concerned. The peace process may be over. Uh, but you have a completely different take. And it was a take, by the way, uh, that after I heard you talk about it, you pointed me to uh, an op-ed in The New York Times last week from Youssef Munayar, a uh, Palestinian, uh, who seems to uh, share this same take with you. He says Netanyahu's win is actually good for Palestine. So let me let you explain both his position and your position, because I think it's kind of interesting. Sure. So Yusuf Monair is um, now uh, taking the helm at the U.S. campaign to end the Israeli occupation. Um, he is a longtime Washington, D.C. insider, really reasonable guy. And in his op-ed, he points out how if there had been a government put in place that would have been to the left of Netanyahu, what we may have ended up with was what we heard the president and the administration intimating just ahead of the election, which was trying to get another peace process going. And now, th now that we have hindsight and we can look at what the peace process was, it was a process. It, it, it was never going to lead to anything. The 20 years of the so-called peace process merely allowed Israel time 
to have 20 more years to develop and grow the Jewish-only settlements that are all throughout the West Bank. So you're, you're saying essentially you don't see the, uh, the peace process up till now as really legitimate in any way? It was a, a, a stalling tactic, essentially, to uh, allow the set settlements to expand and so forth? Well, if you look at the results of the, that time period, that's mm -hmm. what happened. And if you read you know, the things that are written by people who were part of those negotiations, we hear things like uh, Israel never presented a map when they were trying at the last Camp David with President Clinton. They were trying to get Yasser Arafat to agree to a deal, never showing him a map of what lands they were going to give, in, in, besides the fact that they were going to require all these things of that state that a, that a normal state wouldn't have to deal with. Okay, so S.D. Chandler, let's say that, uh, in fact, the peace process was a bit of a sham. If that's the case, how does Netanyahu coming in saying there will never be a two-state solution uh, on my watch— uh, of course, he's walked that back as soon as he was uh, elected. But uh, how does him saying there will be no uh, two-state solution, how does that actually help the peace process uh, or at least uh, the concerns of, of progressive Israelis, those interested in peace, uh, Palestinians? How does that end up helping them? I, I, I don't get that. Well, um, two things. One, the administration doesn't seem to have accepted the walk back. They say that it's going to be very hard for people to... Um, believe that, you, you know, you're in favor of a two-state solution. Because, in fact, in, his, in the last uh, Netanyahu administration, they didn't do anything that showed. There, was, there were words, but no actions that showed that they, in fact, were moving towards a two-state solution. You say the Ob it's the Obama administration, you say, is, is not accepting the walkback by uh, Likud? Yes. If okay. you look at his, um, he did an interview with Huffington Post where he basically, you know, says it's, it's going to be really hard for people to believe that considering. Gotcha. Um, and the reason why there are people, um, Israeli activists, uh, Palestinian solidarity activists who think that this is the best outcome is because if, if Israel is showing their unwillingness to come to the table and to negotiate a deal, then disallowing the Palestinians to use other nonviolent means, i.e. working through the U.N. or the International Criminal Court, that, that's their only recourse. And the reason why they have been moving in those directions is because they have been in these peace, quote-unquote peace process talks, mm -hmm. and it seemed very clear to them that Israel wasn't interested in making a deal. They weren't negotiating in a way that felt like there was going to be a deal come out of it. So they had started to move it towards other means of, you know, popular, nonviolent, negotiated um, action, which would be through the UN that was set up for this type of a thing, um, in which they've been, to, up to this point, um, blocked by the U.S. veto. Uh, and joining the International Criminal Court. And the U.S. Uh, the US has been very protective of Israel, uh, obviously, in the U.N. for decades. So you're thinking that uh, with, with Netanyahu in here, uh, U.S., uh, the Obama administration, may say enough is enough. We're no longer going to protect Israel at the U.N. They're on their own. We're not going to use our veto power in the, uh, in the Security Council to, to block measures against them. You think that will be hastened by, uh, by Netanyahu in, uh, in power there for another two, four years? 
I do. I'm not saying that I think that they're going to go full tilt, but I do think that the idea of letting a resolution, um, you know, calling the settlements illegal or, you know, calling upon the cessation of the expansion is possible. I also want to pose a another idea. As you were saying that, you know, the, the issue of Israel-Palestine has n now suddenly become a partisan issue. I I'd like to make the argument that Israel-Palestine or Israel mm -hmm. is a domestic policy issue in this country because the Israel lobby in this country is so powerful, and the the way lobbies in this country get powerful is because they can help political parties. Mm -hmm. So they've seen the shrewdness of helping both parties, and they have been able to get you know Jewish voters vote in higher numbers than than our um, demographic. We volunteer in higher numbers than our demographic, and we also donate for political campaigns in higher numbers than our demographic. Mm -hmm. So keeping those dollars coming is very important to the political parties. The mm -hmm. Republicans would love for the Republican Party to be seen as the stronger, the better BFF of Israel so that they <laughs> right. can get more of those dollars. Um, it turns out that a higher percentage of total donations to the Democratic Party mm -hmm. come from those sources than to the Republicans. Mm -hmm. So. The Republicans have, you know, it makes sense for them to try to work for that. And I think that that's why it has taken so long for Democrats to really, I mean, when you think about there are, you know, in the Jewish community, we call them PEPs, um, progressive except for Palestine. <laughs> and we have the same phenomenon in our U.S. Congress where, you know, people who are great champions of equality, uh, you know, take a pass when it comes to this. And I think that's because of our pay-to-play political system where every, you know, Congress people are constantly fundraising. They have to run for office every two years. And, you know, they need campaign donations to run those campaigns because of the high media costs. I'm speaking to S.D. Chandler of JewishVoiceForPeace.org. She's also the producer and co-host of Middle East In Focus uh, on KPFK Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles. Uh, S.D., uh, are, are you just trying to make the best of a bad situation here? In other words, uh, when we chatted about this over the weekend, you actually said you think this is the best possible outcome. That seems to me to be, frankly, extraordinary cynical. Uh, if this really is the best possible situation, and you, you don't get to vote, right? You're not an Israeli citizen, are you? I'm not an Israeli citizen. Okay. And, and if I use the words best outcome, what I, what I mean is that I think that this outcome mm -hmm. is the shortest distance between a final agreement uh -huh. whereby Palestinians and Jewish Israelis can have equality mm -hmm. in the lands called Israel and Palestine um, it's obviously the best possible outcome would be for everybody to want that and to sit down and to negotiate it. But I think that of the outcomes that could have happened in the election, uh -huh. I think that this is going to hasten peace faster than if a more progressive or a seemingly more progressive um, administration were put together and we ended up with another um, long protracted, ter terribly ineffective 
um, quote unquote peace process. So with Netanyahu in place, this is better than had uh, the Labor Party, the Zionist camp uh, and, and Herzog won because it would it would have just kickstarted the peace talks again. But those would have gone on forever, gotten us nowhere is what you seem to be saying. So with that said, uh, I know you don't uh, get to vote in these Israel elections, but had you had the opportunity thinking that this would be the better direction, the better outcome, would you actually have voted if you had the choice for Benjamin Netanyahu and the Likud party? Yeah, it's it's a non sequitur because I've never been an Israeli citizen. Right. I don't ever plan to be, so I would never be voting there. But that's okay because I've got a I've got a follow up question for you on this. So would you vote? Would you have voted for Netanyahu and Likud? I believe I would have. Okay. So under the theory that things have to get so much worse before they can get better, the people need to see that this process doesn't work. Therefore, the U.S. will stop helping out Israel in the U.N. Therefore, uh, the, the boycott, divestment, and sanctions campaign will—you're uh, suggesting that, that uh, the BDS campaign will, uh, will also thrive now that uh, Netanyahu is in power, uh, I think. Um, so under that theory that things have to get worse before they can get better, you worked uh, on the Obama campaign. Uh, you know, coming up, we're coming up presidential elections in 2016. Uh, does that same theory work here? Would you go out and vote for, let's say, the worst possible Republicans so that things get so bad that uh, we have no choice but to change them? It seems incredibly cynical, in other words, when it's applied here to the U.S. And so I'm trying to understand, you know, if there's a different case here in the U.S. than as you see in Israel. I think the whole conversation, I think it is very cynical. Um, I don't see myself ever voting for Ted Cruz. Um, but, you know, I don't, we don't know who's going to be running for the Democratic Party. So I, I couldn't tell you who, who I would vote for yet. So you can foresee a situation, even though you worked for Barack Obama uh, back in, I guess, uh, 2007, 2008, you could foresee a situation where you would vote for a Republican because you think the worst possible outcome would be the best possible outcome. I can't say that for sure in this application. I, I don't think that the situations are exactly the same. Mm -hmm. I, I think that there are similarities, but I don't think that the situations are exactly the same. I think that, you know, I my family lives in Israel. I care very much about their well-being and their future, and I actually see ending the occupation as soon as possible as being the best thing for them, and I see uh, this as being the quickest path to ending the occupation. I'm sad that that's the case. Before I let you go here, Esti, uh, have you talked to your uh, parents and your family uh, and friends back in Israel about this position? Uh, are there a lot of Israelis that you know that share this position that, hey, this is actually the best thing for peace to have Netanyahu uh, back in charge for a couple more years? I don't. I try not to talk politics with my family yeah. um, as a rule. And uh, this is the position of I was just in Washington, D.C. recently with a lot of Israeli activists, and, and it seemed to be their opinion as well. Uh, well, you know what? It's, uh, it's an interesting position. It's certainly a more optimistic uh, way to look at these elections, because uh, I know there's a lot of uh, depressed people looking at what happened in those Israeli elections recently. Uh, so this third way... Mm, who knows? Maybe it gives us hope. And I really appreciate you, uh, Esty Chandler, uh, sharing it with me uh, and coming on uh, broadcast to talk about it. Esty Chandler, she is the producer and co-host of Middle East in Focus, heard on KPFK Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles on Sundays.
from 1 p.m. to 2 p.m., if you must know. She is also a, uh, a volunteer and an organizer with JewishVoiceForPeace.org. Esty, great talking to you. Hope to do it again soon. Thanks, Beth. But if you close your eyes, does it I've been here before. That's what it feels like. Uh, much more broadcast straight ahead, including Ernest Canning discussing the uh, recent disturbing decision from the Supreme Court concerning photo ID restrictions in Wisconsin. Uh, and much, much more, including Desi Doyen and your Green News Report. All of that straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the broadcast. Stay tuned. Now I can understand why you were hot Cause Bin Laden never did get caught So you said we had Saddam to blame Tried to tell us it was all the same Now the years roll by and our kids keep dying You don't even have a plan to bring them home And those WMD you promised on TV Man, I love that song. Haven't gotten to play that really since, oh, I don't know, 2005, 2006, 2007. Uh, Tony Stampley actually came out during the uh, Bush administration, taking our country back. Uh, love that tune. Uh, There's a reason I'm playing it, of course. Oh, welcome back to the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly blogger from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us this afternoon on the Bradcast. Uh, Ted Cruz, as we mentioned at the top of the hour, <laughs> he's he's the first official candidate on the Republican side of the, uh, of the aisle to officially declare his candidacy. And he said, uh, so he came in on Monday, he made this remarkable comment on Tuesday. Uh, he added the most ingenious calculatedly clever, most insipidly pandering, and most brilliantly political remark I think I have ever heard. He, he should he should almost be allowed to win the presidency just because he was clever enough to come up with this response. He was on the uh, CBS uh, in this morning show, uh, happy to see you, whatever the hell they call it. Uh, and he was asked about uh, what kind of music does he like? And his response was amazing. Desi Doyen, have you heard this yet? No, I haven't, but I love that hard-hitting question. What kind of music do you like? Yeah, I know. Well, it was the, it was the end of the interview. Okay, it's a little human interesting. Tell okay. us about the real Ted Cruz. Uh, what kind of music do you like? His response, this dude is so brilliantly political uh, with the response he came back with. Uh, give it a listen. What kind of music do you like, Ted Cruz? You know, music is interesting. I grew up listening to classic rock, and I'll tell you sort of an odd story. My my music taste changed on 9-11. On 9-11, <laughs> I, 
I didn't like how rock music responded. <laughs> and country music collectively, the way they responded, it resonated with me. And I have to say, ah. it just is a gut level. I had an emotional reaction that says, these are my people. And these so ever since people. 2001, I listened to country music. But I'm an odd country music fan uh -huh. because yeah. I didn't listen to it prior to 2000. Oh, you didn't listen to it until after 9-11. And now you care about these people. These are your people. Yeah, that is odd and curious that suddenly he becomes a country music fan. I don't know. So cynical. So unbelievably, brilliantly cynical. He both gets 9-11 in there, and he talks about his love for country music, for the Southern folk, the people he needs to get on his side in this uh, GOP primary. I just... Uh, I'm, you know, I'm incredibly impressed by that response. Well, I can't believe that it is so inauthentic that <laughs> it actually fools anybody. Because I look at that and I think, really, really, you just decided suddenly that you love country music, and now you just listen to nothing else but country music because that's where your voters might be. Yeah, but that's because you hate America. You love the Dixie Chicks, and you don't understand what we went through on 9/11. What also surprises me about this yeah. is the fact that he says, I didn't like how rock music reacted. Right. And I remember there was that big telethon and there was all the big rock stars that were actually physically there answering the phones on the telethon. Bon right. Jovi, you, uh, Bono from U2, I mean, Bruce Sting, Springsteen. Bruce everybody, everybody was there. Everybody in rock was there. So it is so disingenuous to say, oh, I just, I didn't like the way rock music uh, responded, but I sure did love the country songs. Man. Uh, anyway, kudos for him. It's going to be a fun, fun uh, primary. Oh, get your popcorn. Yes, get your popcorn. And actually, uh, go ahead and get yours all popped up, Desi. We're going to talk to you in a few minutes, of course, with the latest Green News report. All right, some election news here, some election integrity news, some lack of election integrity news. Brad Blog's Ernie Kenning will be joining us to discuss all of this and much more momentarily uh, in Ohio. <laughs> it's always they're always it's always Ohio in Ohio. The Republicans are now trying to sneak a new voter suppression measure into the transportation budget. Yes, under a last minute addition to Ohio's transportation budget, close to one hundred and sixteen thousand college students will have to pay what a Democratic lawmaker is calling a poll tax in order to vote. This is from Think Progress. Republicans in the state Senate last week inserted into the budget bill a provision which would require people who move to the state and register to vote to re-register their cars with Ohio within 30 days. Otherwise, they would be required to surrender their driver's licenses from their home state. If the provision is not removed from this bill, out-of-state college students will have to pay close to $100 to re-register their vehicles in Ohio in order to cast a ballot in their new home state, placing yet another barrier on voting in a state whose election chief's efforts have actually made it much harder for people to vote, says Think Progress, and it has. He has uh, Secretary of State John Husted has shortened the early voting period. Uh, he, he did block photo ID restrictions to his credit, but he's done a lot of other things to make it a lot harder for people to vote. Uh, State Rep Kathleen Clyde, a Democrat, said, it's very concerning the message we're sending to young people and to people uh, moving to our great state about their fundamental right to vote. Uh, 
She said, I'd like to throw out the welcome mat to them and encourage them to participate in the community and participate in their democracy. But this provision does the exact opposite. Clyde said it was uh, the provision was added to the budget at the last minute after the public hearings were over. (laughs) So it, quote, didn't have any vetting or public comment or much time for us to get information about it. I'm sure that was an accident. State law currently permits out-of-state college and university students to register to vote in Ohio without giving up their driver's licenses or vehicle registrations from their home states. Uh, But Republican lawmakers in Ohio are insisting that the provision is just another way for the state to raise transportation revenue. That's all it is. It's not vote suppression. They just get some revenue. Uh, Quote, quite frankly, any effort to label this as voter suppression or poll tax is weak political spin, said John Fortney for the majority Senate Republican caucus. And we saw this, by the way, I I, want to say I think it was up in Maine uh, where they tried something similar uh, a couple of years ago. And it was shot down, as I recall. And basically it flies in the face of this notion that the Supreme Court determined long ago that uh, students going to school out of state, going to school in a different state, it's up to them if they would like to uh, make the place that they're going to school their residence. They are allowed to vote there. It is their right to vote there. They constitutionally, the Supreme Court has decided they cannot be blocked. The Constitution, uh, the Supreme Court has also decided there can be no poll tax. So when you add these things together, a $100 charge or you can't vote, uh, even if the Republicans end up passing this bill, I don't think it will stand scrutiny. But then again, maybe I'm optimistic. Uh, joining me now is someone who is never optimistic, uh, our own Ernie Canning, attorney, legal analyst at bradblog.com. Uh, to talk about that, uh, to talk about what's going on in Wisconsin, and to talk about what went on uh, in this Prop 49 issue out here in California. Ernie Canning, welcome back to the Bradcast. How you doing, Brad? Oh, I'm doing okay. Hanging in there. All right, we got another mess on our hands. 2016, it seems, has started already uh, to some extent, especially at the Supreme Court, where these photo ID restrictions that we have been following, you've been writing about it, Brad Blog, now for years. I've been writing about it, Brad Blog, for years, talking about it here on the show. Uh, We had a mess in 2014 where the Supreme Court uh, came in, blocked some photo ID restrictions from happening. Um, For example, up in Wisconsin, uh, allowed other ones to go forward, for example, down in Texas. Well, now this case in Wisconsin, it's the first one really to be uh, just about ready to go to the Supreme Court. And uh, the folks who are challenging that law in Wisconsin, ACLU and a couple of other groups, uh, essentially filed an emergency petition with the Supreme Court to get this uh, photo ID issue decided on a constitutional basis one way or another, as I understand it. And this week, the Supreme Court turned them down. Ernie Canning, um, first, explain to me that the proce- what the process is, what the Supreme Court actually decided and didn't with this decision, and what does their failure to hear this case uh, mean for 2016? The emergency petition was actually in, in 2014, and that one, because uh, uh, it was so close to the election, 
that uh, they uh, continued what had been a permanent injunction against photo ID um, for that election. You can't change election laws that soon before the election, is what the Supreme Court was saying in the Wisconsin case, correct? Well, it, it is in both, it, actually in, in both that case and the Texas case, but the difference was that uh, in Wisconsin there were about 300,000 voters that uh, would have been disenfranchised for 2014 that were able to vote because the Supreme Court said it was too close to the election. The opposite thing happened in Texas where about 600,000 voters were disenfranchised uh, because uh, the Supreme Court said even though there was a willful discrimination found by the by the trial court and no evidence, uh, no no findings that the trial court had aired, uh, said, well, you, you you impose this injunction too close to the election, so guess what? You people don't get to vote for this election. So it really it had nothing to do at the time with uh, uh, you know whether, with rights with the Constitution whether it was going to keep people from voting or not. It's uh, the Supreme Court saying, hey, don't change the rules at the last minute, even if they're bad rules. They have to stay in place uh, because we are going to almost arbitrarily not allow states to change rules at the last minute. And not allow the courts to, to rectify the situation at the last minute. They get a free bite at the apple. You know, it may be discriminatory. It may be willful discrimination. But if you don't get your injunction timely, uh, uh, you know, at least one election, you're not going to have a right to vote. Uh, so that's what happened that time around. Mm-hmm. This time around, what happened was... In the Wisconsin case, uh, you had a three-judge panel initially on the appellate court, which was headed by a, a guy named Frank Easterbrook, who is part of the Robert Bork-founded and uh, Koch Brothers-funded Federalist Society. And he wrote just an awful opinion in which he uh, basically uh, uh, reversed the the trial court's injunction. It was not uh, awful because it was just uh, unpleasant to read. It was awful because it was wrong on the law. Over and over again, for example, he would talk about how, you know, you must have a, a photo ID to get onto a plane. Uh, that, of course, set me off. You don't need a photo ID uh, to get onto a plane. The TSA will allow you to get on a plane, even without a photo ID. You know, the commercial airlines are not about to turn away 30 million Americans who don't have photo ID. So this Easterbrook guy got it just plain wrong. It was worse than that. It it pretty much was a political decision and not a legal decision. And he was, what happened was Judge Posner, he, he literally tore apart uh, both the legal and factual reasoning uh, was saying just because the, the state legislature says something, uh, it doesn't mean it's so. And he, he compared it to saying, well, if the state legislature says that uh, we have yeah. to believe in witchcraft, does that mean the courts are bound by it? And, and this is the guy who initially said photo ID restrictions were fine back in 2008 uh, in uh, Indiana. He's completely changed and said, you know what, we have a lot more evidence now. We realize this is being done to keep people from voting. But Ernie, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to, I want to just move it forward to where we are now in Wisconsin, because essentially you had the ACLU going and saying, look, let's get this settled now. Let's go to the Supreme Court. Let's determine on a constitutional basis once and for all whether these uh, type of restrictions are uh, are constitutional, are allowed under the uh, under the Voting Rights Act. And that is what the Supreme Court said. No, nah, you know what? We don't want to hear it right now. We're not going to hear that case. They couldn't even get the 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 courts for liberals 
to vote uh, to hear that case in Wisconsin. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's disturbing. Well, by turning that down, the Supreme Court has, in essence, allowed this horrible decision by Easterbrook to remain the law in Wisconsin for now. And so what's going to happen is there are 300,000 mostly Democratic-leaning voters, uh, disproportionately li- my minority voters, that will likely be disenfranchised. And when you look at how much Obama won the last presidential election in Wisconsin, which was a little over 200,000, mm-hmm votes, that could very well uh, swing the the state to the GOP in the upcoming 2016 election. And that's 300,000 voters who are legally registered in the state of Wisconsin, but who will not be able to vote under this law that the Supreme Court has just said, well, it's fine. I mean, they didn't actually say it was fine, but by declining to hear the case, that means, uh, barring any other legal surprises at this point, photo ID restrictions are going to be in place. 300,000 voters, at least in the state of Wisconsin, risk losing their vote in 2016. Uh, Ernie Canning, are there any other states? I know there are similar cases in Texas we talked about a little bit. In North Carolina, are there any other uh, cases that stand to be heard before the Supreme Court in order to uh, block these laws entirely as unconstitutional before 2016? Or are we going to be heading into this uh, presidential election with this same goddamn mess we had in 2014 with these, uh, you know, people being unable to vote because of these new laws, states going back and forth to the courts, uh, you know, to get them struck down, to have them uh, restored, etc. Are we looking at the same mess in 2016 at this point? We could well be the closest they have. The, the, um, the Texas case, that case right now is pending before the Circuit Court of Appeal. I don't see the Texas case getting to the Supreme Court in time, and even if it did, we then run up against the same thing we did in 2014, where even if they find it to be unconstitutional, they may allow it to go ahead because, oh yeah, it's too close to the election to change the laws. Uh, Okay, uh, very quickly, we've got just a minute or two left here, uh, Ernie Canning. Uh, The Supreme Court in California last year struck down the overturned Citizens United uh, initiative, or at least they removed it from the ballot. The the measure essentially would have given voters the uh, opportunity to say to the state legislature, yes, we want you uh, to take measures. We want you to vote in support of a constitutional amendment that says money is not free speech, essentially undoing the damage that was done by the Citizens United decision. All this would have been was an advisory measure on the ballot where the voters gave their advice to the state legislatures legislators about how to move ahead. That was taken off by the California Supreme Court. They said, no, no, you can't do advisory measures on the ballot. The only thing that's allowed to be on the ballot is, you know, laws, uh, straight laws, no advice. So they took that off the ballot. Voters didn't get to vote on that in 2014, but now we've got groups uh, who are challenging that. Uh, A friend of the court brief was filed finding that the California Supreme Court apparently 
got it all wrong in 2014 that, yes, advisory measures are allowed. Do I understand that correctly, Ernie? Well, well, somewhat. The, the court um, you know, basically followed an earlier case, which really was distinguished. And it's one of the problems when the court makes a decision too quickly. And they followed an earlier case that really doesn't apply here. And uh, what happened was there was a, a, a divided court, and the, there was one uh, justice who said there, there's no provision in the California Constitution that would would authorize uh, the people to to give this kind of advisory opinion as a ballot measure. Turns out he's dead wrong. It's been in the California Constitution since 1849, and has been <laughs> used uh, repeatedly even before they had the initiative process uh, that was adopted in 1911. The court didn't rule on the merits of the case. They merely ruled that because there was a risk that this not might not be a constitutional. Uh, uh, thing to do. Yeah, back in 2014, you're talking about. Back in 2014, 2014 they didn't. 2014, and now what's right. happening is the case is proceeding to a hearing on the merits, and it's been briefed. And what this brief did was it laid out in detail that the California Constitution says that the that the people have a right to instruct their legislators. That's literally in uh, in the California state. Uh, uh, constitution that it has been since 1849 and hasn't been changed even with all the amendments that, that have been put in and the interesting thing is that um, uh, the very arguments that ha- that were being presented to stop this uh, last time were the very arguments that were rejected during the first California Constitutional uh, Convention back then it gets down to the basic issue of whether or not the people are truly sovereign and here you have this decision, Citizens United, that allows corporations to act as people and money to control what we say and think. And and yet in 2014, the people themselves were silenced on this issue, not being allowed to speak out as to where they, as the people of California, stand on whether or not this fundamental issue of whether corporations are people and whether uh, money is speech. And yet the people were silenced, apparently, in violation of the Constitution. And that's what's going to, I guess, come back up now before the court. This may now be on the ballot, I guess, in uh, 2016. Is that right, Ernie? That's correct. That's yeah. the whole issue that's before the court as to whether we'll finally be able to, to the people of uh, California will be finally able to instruct their legislators, uh, uh, hey, this is what we want. That would be nice. Uh, Ernie Canning, our legal analyst at bradblog.com. Thank you for shedding light on these issues. And I suspect the the 2016 elections are on. And so it's going to be another busy year or two. Thanks, Ernie. Always great talking to you, my friend. Take care, Brad. Thanks. Thank you. Okay, before we get to Desi Doyen and the Green News Report, some very quick news out of Australia (laughs) from New South Wales. We have talked also on this show for years about the problem with internet voting. And yet in this country, including here in California, Democrats in California continue to talk about, oh, we need internet voting because it'll get more people to vote. (sighs) Yeah, never mind that it is impossible to oversee. Never mind that every world-class computer scientist in the world says it can't possibly be made secure on our internet. And we keep finding this out election after election. Whenever they try this out back in, I think it was 2010 in Washington, D.C., they had an internet voting election that was set to go live. 
for overseas and military voters, and then some white hat hackers, some good guy hackers, were able to hack the system so that anytime anybody voted on it, uh, it played the University of Michigan fight song. That was their clue. They had hacked it. Later on, they said, we overtook the entire system in just a few hours' time. We were able to change every single vote that had been cast already and that would be cast in any future elections. That's just one example. This always happens with Internet voting, and yet people continue to try it. For example, down in Australia, a major security hole that could allow an attacker to read or change someone's vote has been discovered in the New South Wales online iVote platform, security experts say. The iVote system allows people to lodge their votes for Saturday's state election online instead of visiting a physical polling station. It aims to make voting easier for the disabled or for people who live long distances from polling booths. However, computer security researchers said they found a critical issue and alerted the New South Wales Electoral Commission on Friday. The commission said the problem was fixed over the weekend and it expected 200,000 people would use the system in the lead up to the election. Well, of course, if the people who ran this broken system, who created this broken system in the first place, say it's fixed. Why shouldn't we believe them? University of Melbourne's Vanessa Teague said just because they've patched this particular bug that they found that they've specifically been notified of does not mean that they fixed the fundamental questions around the security and verifiability of the system. So, uh, yeah, they found out just days before the election was to be held that votes, they could spy on votes, they could change everyone's votes, and yet they were ready to use this system for a real live election. Man, enough. Anyway, let's do some green news. Okay, Desi Doyen, melting for you once again <laughs> yes. here on the broadcast. Uh, it in we continue to melt out here in California. We have a very California-centric green news coming up momentarily, by the way. But before we get to that, very quickly, last week you were wringing your hands, you were worried, you were terrified that all of Europe was going to collapse because. There was a solar eclipse coming, and now that uh, Europe and Germany in particular uses so much solar power, this was going to be a collapse of the system. You were just beside yourself, if I remember last week's show correctly. And you don't what? actually remember last week's what? show correctly, but that's okay. Actually, the, um, the solar eclipse that happened in Europe, it was on March 20th. And surprise, it worked out just fine. What? No disaster? No disaster. No Europeans, end times in Europe? European civilization is intact. And I should say that is just as you had predicted. Yes, it was. And as the grid operators had predicted as well, because they were ready for it. And I said, this is a great test of what the future power grid is going to look like in Germany and in Europe when it is primarily powered by solar energy. So it gave them a great opportunity to really test out the system. Well, what can I say? You've gotten it right again. Smartly done. Let's get to our latest Green News report. And many of the alarmists on global warming, they got a problem because the science doesn't back them up. Get out your popcorn. Ted Cruz is running for president. What he said is absolutely false. But California Governor Jerry Brown is unimpressed. I think it's inevitable that it's going to be required. Is mandatory water rationing in California's future? 
Plus, in Florida, don't say climate change or you might be sent to a mental hospital. Yeah, if you're thinking of going to Florida, you might want to go to a mental hospital anyway. Just saying. All of that and more straight ahead from bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and, yes, snarky comment. Well, the answer to California's drought is Jesus Christ. Rain will follow repentance. Abortion, homosexuality, pornography, Hollywood's movies that promote sexual immorality, violence, bloodshed, witchcraft. All of it has combined to reach a level of depravity, and God has no other choice but to cut off the rain. Oh, well, that explains that. I thought it was global warming. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, apparently this uh, right-winger Rick Wiles thinks uh, the California drought out here is your fault because you are a uh, harridan, a harlot, a sinner. Uh, I don't know what it is, but it's it's your fault that God's cut off the water. You know, those farmers who are running out of water in the Central Valley, they're, they're kind of majority Republican. Yeah, they are, but apparently they're paying the price for your sins. <laughs> Aside from your sins, Desi Doyen, what do you have for us today? I know it's a very California-centric episode today, I think. Yes, it is, for good reason. Republican Senator Ted Cruz of Texas announced on Monday that he is running for the 2016 Republican presidential nomination. Cruz is one of the Senate's prominent climate change deniers. And in a recent appearance on Late Show with Seth Meyers, he took the opportunity to spread wildly false information. Satellite data demonstrate for the last 17 years... There's been zero warming, none whatsoever. Zero warming, Desi Doyen. Why have we been wasting all our time on this? Well, it turns out he's actually quite wrong. What? California's Democratic Governor Jerry Brown was scathing when he was asked to respond to Cruz's remarks on NBC's Meet the Press. He says climate change science denial should be disqualifying. What he said is absolutely false. And that man betokened such a level of ignorance and a direct Uh, falsification of the existing scientific data. It's shocking, and I think that man has rendered himself absolutely unfit to be running for office. Wow, strong words from the governor. Although I'm still trying to figure out what the hell betokens means. (laughs) Well, while you're pondering that, remember, back in 2012, the corporate media treated climate change as unmentionable. So this could be a sign that it will be a defining issue in 2016. It will indeed. And I look forward to, as each of these guys gets into the race, information about their opinion on global warming. I suspect almost all of them have the same one. It's not happening. These aren't the droids you're looking for. No, of course not. Now, Governor Brown, for his part, is dealing with the immediate and deepening impacts of an historic drought in California, which studies indicate has been intensified by global warming. Brown has introduced a $1 billion emergency drought relief package in the state legislature. That doesn't seem like very much, considering the crisis that we're now up against out here, with NASA finding that we We have maybe one more year left of surface water. That's right. And California's lieutenant governor, Gavin Newsom, agrees with you. In an interview with MSNBC, he says that these emergency drought measures will help, but they don't go nearly far enough to address the scale of the crisis. We're going to talk about conservation, which we must, and efficiency, which we must. uh, But I think we're going to have to move towards mandatory rationing. We have a voluntary rationing uh, uh, that's been out for a year. It's just simply inadequate to the moment. 
And it's important to note that no California governor has ever declared mandatory rationing in the history of the state. It's also important to note that Gavin Newsom, our lieutenant governor, is planning on running for governor in 2018. So this is no small thing for a guy seeking higher office to come out and call for mandatory water rationing. It either tells you how extraordinary this moment is or how crazy Gavin Newsom is. And I don't think he's crazy. Finally, speaking of crazy, in Florida, although Republican Governor Rick Scott, a climate change denier, has denied that his administration has an unwritten rule barring state employees from even saying the words global warming, well, now a Florida state employee has filed a complaint against the state saying he was suspended in retaliation for mentioning climate change at a public event and was ordered to undergo a psychiatric evaluation before he'd be allowed to return to work. He was ordered to have a psych evaluation because he uttered the words global warming or climate change? Yeah. Remember what I said about Florida? You got to be crazy to want to go there, I think, at this point. Thank you, Desi Doyen. For much more on all of our stories today and the ones we couldn't get to, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget, you can download us anytime via iTunes, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Find us and follow us on the Facebook and the Twitters at Green News Report. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. And this has been your Green News Report. Does that make me crazy? Crazy indeed. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen. Also, my thanks to my guests this week, Esty Chandler from KPFK's Middle East in Focus and from JewishVoiceForPeace.org. And, of course, to our old friend, Ernest A. Canning, our legal analyst at Bradblog.com. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it from the archives at KPFK.org or over at Bradblog.com or over at iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, anywhere else you like. We'll see you same Brad time, same Brad channel next week. Until then, you can find me on the Twitters at the Brad blog and of course at bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.